We're going to be reading from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. The scriptures that we're using as we're moving through this uh, sermon series are really stepping stones or launching points for us to look at some big topics. Um, We have those listed in the bulletin. We've been talking about those a lot, so I'm not going to go back over all of those. But I do want to say that as we've been moving through this and answering these questions, um, what we said about who God is, if we just want some simple bullet points to help us remember, we talked about God being known in this relationship that is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we said, what has God done? God the Father sent the Son to reconcile us and to fix that relationship, to forgive us from sin. The Spirit empowered the Son Filled the Son and gave the Son power to rise from the dead and to do all that Jesus did. The Son served us. Served us. And so Jesus talked about his act of um, you know, death and resurrection as being an act of service that he would be doing, laying down his life. And not that he did not come to be served. So those are things that God has done. And then we said last week we said, well, who does that, who are we then? You know, what's our identity? And we talk about how big picture-wise, this is what we call ecclesiology. We are the church. The church is those who are gathered and then sent. And we're going to talk about that sending component. But essentially, the Father sent the Son to reconcile uh, us to the, fa- the Father, and that makes us family. So we talked about how we can't avoid that kind of language in Scripture. As painful as our human family relationships are, um, we are children of God. We've been adopted, the scriptures will say, into God's family. That's part of our identity. Um, the, the Spirit empowered the Son, and then the Son sent the Spirit into us, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to us, and that that makes us missionaries. Missionary, that term really just has to do with being a witness okay, uh, to what Jesus has done. And we all have this identity. It's not missionaries are not just those we send far away. But all of us are called to be a sent people. This is part of our identity as a group and as individuals. And we do that through the power of the Spirit. The Son served us. And then He said, now you've seen how I serve you. You go and do likewise. So we're also servants. So today we finally get to the question of what should we do? And I said at the very beginning of this that it is so important that we move through these questions in order. Because if we begin with the question, what are we to do, we often become self-centered, we often become frantic, worried, anxious, busy, and sometimes for all the wrong reasons. So as a called people, as a Um, people reconciled to our Creator, to our Father, we want to make sure that we are moving from a point of um, grace, forgiveness, from a point of strength and power in the Holy Spirit, from a point of understanding who we are called to be, that we're fully loved as we are, as children of God, before we then move into what we do. And if we can rest in those things and, and live into those other pieces who God is, what God has done, who we are, then we can be more certain in those things that we are called to do. I could probably sum up up this whole idea in one short point, but then of course I have to talk to you longer, because that's what I do. But I've shared this with so many people, because I'll never forget, I had a professor who wrote a very good book 
will of God. Um, it's still one of my favorites. I've handed it out to many, many people. It's called The Will of God is the Way of Life. And, he, and I, the one piece I remember so distinctly from that book, is because he talked about it in our classes too, is that he said that you know, the will of God is often something we look at as some kind of distant future type thing. And that we're trying to find it and seek it out and find this certain path. And if we mess up, we get way off this path. And then we think we have to go back to it. And he said the will of God is so abundantly clear when we think about it in the present. Don't we all simply know what God's will is for us today? To love the person who's around us, to, to care for each other, to simple things. I know I'm not supposed to lie, right? I mean, just go back to the Ten Commandments. I mean, we know fundamentally the will of God. I remember Eugene Peterson, that, um, well, he's a lot of things, but he he's most well known for translating the message. And I remember him um, saying that, you know, baby, even baby Christians know enough about the gospel to live it out, to begin to live it out. And yet we often spend, Decades in Bible studies saying, I'm just fretting over, I just don't know what I should do. And he said, you know, in one sense, the will of God is very simple. Okay, the will of God, we do know very clearly, most of us know even internally through the Holy Spirit what we are to do. But I want to look at Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapter 25 as a way of getting at this today. So if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you're going to read from verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand, and the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those at His right hand, <clears throat> Come, you that are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me, to me. Then he will say to those that is left, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord... When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fathers, we hear your word this morning. We hear both praise and acceptance and warning and judgment and condemnation. And we know, God, that you are a just God. We know, Lord, that you have called us to a way that is not easy, a way that is not perhaps natural to us because of sin. And yet, Lord, we see that it is a good way. We pray, Father, that you would help us to hear what your Spirit would have us hear this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That scripture, um, I chose in part because I don't feel like it needs a lot of explanation for us to grasp the basic force of what Jesus is saying here. Um, we're going to look at some aspects of it, but what are we to do is a question that we're looking at this morning. And I mentioned last week, it's so important for us not to get ecclesiology, or what the church is, confused with missiology, what the church is to do. Because so often we have said, well, what we do is church. And what we mean by that usually is all of our programs and our Sunday mornings and those things. What we do as Christians is church. And then some of us are missionaries, right? It's, but it's actually, it's actually the other way around. What we are is the church. We have been made into a people. We have been called and we are sent as a people. That's our identity. What we do is actually missiology. It's mission. It's the sentness. It's the things that we are called to be and do in this world. That's missiology. We don't want to get those things confused. We can't talk about people being missionaries. That's true. But we are primarily the church, and what we do is mission. So when we said, who is God? God's Father. What has God done? The Father sent the Son to reconcile us, and that has made us family. And so what do we do if we are family? Here's the thing. When we think about that part of the, the narrative, who's God, Father, and all that Jesus has done, to make us family. We have to understand the radical nature of that. And that's, we talked about this a little bit. This idea that we were estranged, not just estranged, actually the, the scriptures say we were enemies of God. We were enemies. Think about that word for a minute. I mean, we, we were hearing that word a lot in the news, right? We were enemies of God. Not just Somewhat indifferent, but hostile. And while we were enemies, the Father sent the Son to die for us and to reconcile us so that we could become children. Someone needs to make that movie sometime. The enemy who gets adopted as a child. That would be powerful. That's, that's the basis of this gospel narrative. That's who we are and what God has done for us. And so what should we do then? Well, Jesus told us quite clearly. He said, you should love your enemies. So we, we can say we should love each other as family. And we talked about that. That is true. That we should do. 
But that, in some ways, is a lot easier than actually the calling, which is to love those who are still hostile to God, to love those who are still enemies to God, to love those who are our enemies. And this is where we really, our actions reveal how much we grasp the depth of God's grace. Because if we cannot love our enemies, then what we're really saying is, I really wasn't that much of an enemy myself. We, it's subtle, but I hope you see how we do that. And I talked about this a little bit last week, where we, we, we suddenly think, well, when I'm reading in the paper about that person who's a murderer on death row, who's come to saving grace, that seems unfair. Why does that seem unfair? Well, it seems unfair because I'm so much better. Is what I'm really thinking in my head, right? I didn't kill anybody. And yet the, the law convicts us. This is what Paul says. This is why Jesus, when he, worked on, you know, when he did the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you've ever been angry with a brother or sister, you've already committed murder in your heart. Don't you see? You are just as much an enemy to God as those who have committed murder. And Jesus loves you. He accepts you. He forgives you. So what should we do? We should love those who are unlovable, as well as those who are lovable. Of course, this is a lot easier to say than to live out. What should we do in light of God being the Spirit, who empowered the Son and sent us as missionaries? Matthew 28, 18, if we just go a couple chapters over, is that famous, um, some of the famous last words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus spells this out for us. He said, Jesus came and said to them, to the disciples who were gathered, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, what should we do? Well, we are sent people. We said that's part of our identity. We have also received power through the Holy Spirit, as Jesus did. This making disciples that Jesus talks about, this is what we are to do, to make disciples. We are to be disciples who make disciples. That's actually part of the identity we have, that we have been made disciples and we're to make disciples. So baptism, really, when Jesus says, go out into all the world and baptize them, that's the initiation into the family. That's always been, for Christians, the initiation into the family. It's one of the reasons why, in, um, say, the Presbyterian Church, myself as a Presbyterian pastor, I baptize infants. If people want their infants to be baptized. Because it's initiation into the family of God, regardless of knowledge or whether you deserve it. That's the, our, that's the historic Christian understanding of baptism. So you're initiated into the family in baptism. That's why Jesus says, go into all the world and baptize them. Do you notice that he didn't say, go into all the world and make disciples, and then when they understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptize them. He says, go into all the world and baptize them and make disciples. That's the typical, usual order. Now, the Holy Spirit never likes to be shoved into a box. Things happen in a lot of different ways in our lives. But this is how we understand our mission. We're to go, we're to initiate people in the family, we're to say, hey, you are a brother or sister, though you are also an enemy of mine or an enemy of God. Uh, come, hear the good news, become part of the family. 
we need more messed up brothers and sisters because we don't have enough. Come join us. And then we're going to make disciples. You see, I think this is where the church, the, the Western church is seriously in trouble today. And we're waking up to this. We're, we are waking up to this. Our disciple-making process has been broken for some time. And here's why I say that. I, you can feel free to disagree with me. And you may already. But here's why I say that. Making disciples does not happen in a church building and in a Bible study. That's all knowledge. Now, yes, you can teach them how to pray. You may be able to teach them how to care for one another. We need to hear God's word. You can teach them the knowledge of the gospel. But discipleship is what has to happen when I'm at the grocery store or when my kids are misbehaving or when I'm in a baseball game and I have a parent yelling at me. I mean, that's where discipleship happens. That's the stuff of life. So how can we teach people to be disciples if we're not sharing our life together outside of our, our meetings here in this, in this place or whatever place we gather? And this is where it's broken down. We've made it very much, discipleship has become very much cerebral. It's very much a head thing. Something where we teach knowledge. But knowledge is not the same as belief. Belief requires action. So discipleship requires action. You know, I... I I have been convicted of this, especially because I spent so many years working in youth ministry. And youth ministry is one of the few places in the church where we've been honest enough to say we're failing. Because so many of our kids, we can't deny it any longer. I mean, they do these generational studies on the millennials. And they have, have an unprecedented rate of being non-church attenders, non-church participants in any other generation in American history. And so some people stand back and go, oh, woe is me, it's because of the moral decline of the country and all those kinds of things. But it's the church's responsibility to make those kids into disciples. These are Christian kids. They're being raised up in church, and they're hearing the gospel, they're getting Sunday school, they do know the Bible, and then once they graduate high school, they're gone. And so far, they haven't been coming back, and we ask why. It's because of our breakdown in discipleship. Some of this thinking goes, goes like this. It goes like we're, the parents and sometimes youth pastors and others think we need to raise up the next generations of Christians and missionaries. And so what we're going to do is we're going to isolate them from the world. We're going to protect them. We're going to make sure that they don't see any bad movies or hear any bad music or do anything wrong. We're going to make sure they have only good friends. And we're going to keep them in this little bubble until they graduate from high school. And then we're going to go, boom, okay, go out into the world. And then we wonder why they fall apart. At some point, as parents, as a church, we've got to show kids, okay, how do you live out discipleship on social media? You know, what do you do when you run across a pornographic website? These are things that we just, you know, we're not teaching. And this is the stuff of life. And, and so what happens so often, is especially with our young people, but it happens with adults too, is we live these different lives. One life at work, one life with our friends, one life at school, one life with our family. Right? Because we don't know how to put them together because we haven't figured out discipleship yet. I remember I showed a movie. 
I, I made a lot of mistakes in the youth pastor. Can I just say that now? I mean, I look back, and you know, I'm a dad now, so I have a different perspective. Um, this may have been one of them. I showed a movie on a youth retreat one time. It was actually a short film. It was a, some Christians had made it, but it was based on the story that some of you may have heard. Which it's, it's actually been used in um, psychology and in other areas to talk about moral conflict. But Christians have also adopted it because it's a story of a man who is a uh, drawbridge operator. And he uh, brings his child, his young son, to work with him one day. And it's a drawbridge for a train. And his son goes out and starts playing. And his son is playing in the drawbridge, around the drawbridge. And he actually falls into the mechanisms. The drawbridge is up. And at that moment, his father sees that there's a train coming loaded with people. And he has to make a decision whether to lower the drawbridge and kill his son to save all those people, or to leave the drawbridge up, kill all, perhaps a whole bunch of people but save his son. Right? So I showed the short film on a retreat one time, and I had a very interesting mix of responses to it. And again, uh, now my kids at that, my older son's at that age, and so, you know, I wonder. Um, anyway, it's, here's, here's what I found. There were teens who I knew watched horror movies every weekend. Terrible movies that I would personally never watch. And they were horrified by the short film where a father sacrifices his son. Even though we were very clearly making the case that this was an image of the gospel. What God had done. And then on the other hand, I had a bunch of very insulated Christian teens, teens who were horrified simply by the moral messiness of that decision. The fact that there could be a decision where, because, because they had been told that if you're good and you love God, that family can always come first and everything will be okay. So what happens if you actually would have to lose family in order to do the right thing? And that, that really pushed some people in a direction that they couldn't make a reconciliation between those two things. And, and actually, that's, that's the reason I used it, whether that was right or not. Um, you know, I'll have a conversation with God about that someday. But I wanted to push, push people to thinking about those kinds of things. It's very interesting that that's not far off, far off from a question that's being asked today about self-driving cars. I'm fascinated by te- technology. So maybe some of you followed up on this. There's things like the Pacifica minivan and some of the Tesla cars that are coming out on the road today that actually are fully capable of driving themselves. They have all the cameras and all the automation built into it, but it's not fully allowed yet, so they don't have it turned on. But they can turn it on later, so they have some parts of it turned on, like uh, cruise control. So there's a picture of a guy in his Tesla car on a freeway in San Diego sleeping the other day because the adaptive cruise control will steer for you and keep you in the lane and keep you the same speed as the car in front of you. So he was actually asleep at the wheel. And Tesla said, well, they're not supposed to do that, right? But one of the things that's keeping back that technology from coming sooner rather than later, they're saying 2020 is the goal for self-driving cars going the road for consumers, but they're thinking it might come even earlier. But one of the problems is, what, how do you program a car that would have to decide, say, between running into a pedestrian or a group of pedestrians or crashing the car and potentially injuring the driver? If there was some kind of situation where a car had to make that decision, that has to be programmed in. And so they've done studies and they found that most people will say, you should program the cars to do the greatest good. So those cars should be programmed. If they need to have an accident in order to save a group of people, they should have the accident. 
But then the interesting thing is they pull the same group of people and they say, how many of you would buy a car that was programmed that way? And they say, no. So everyone says this is how they should work, but we don't really want a car that would work that way. So this is one of the tensions that they have to figure out, some of these moral tensions. This is life. So discipleship has to engage these moral questions. Discipleship has to see, has to be modeled in the stuff of life, not just in church. Think of it this way. What if we trained our pilots the way, the same way we often train disciples of Jesus? So you take all the ground courses. So when I was in high school, I actually had a chance to take all of the ground courses for the pilots take, all the book stuff. Learning how to map, learning all the, the, the basic understandings of how a plane works and how you're supposed to fly it. Okay, so I took all the ground courses. So what if we trained pilots that way and we said, okay, now you're done with all the ground courses, go fly. You're certified, have fun. Or even we could say drivers of cars that way. What if we trained them that way? None of us want that, right? But so often we train disciples of Jesus that way. We say, we're going to keep you in this little church bubble. We're going to teach you all the knowledge stuff and the head stuff. And then we're going to say, okay, go do it. But we're not going to go with you. Right? That's why pilots have to go with somebody else for hours and hours and hours and hours until they're certified to fly. A fundamental part of being a disciple is making disciples. So what should we do? We should be disciple makers. Who in your life is the person that you're pouring into to be a disciple? Because you've got to spend time with them. It's the only way to do it. You're going to have to spend time with them. So, the last part of this is, um, we said, who is God? God is the Son. And who is the Son? Or what did the Son do? He, he came and He served us. And then He said, you are now also servants. Jesus was the King, but He didn't come to claim that title. But He came to serve. So we read this scripture this morning about the sheep and the goats. And it's a very strong reminder that our acts of service are actually acts of love towards God. And notice that I think it's so important that in this parable, as is in life, that there's no indication that any of these people who were hungry or naked or in prison that any of them were in any way deserving of it. Just simply that when they were served, Jesus said, you did it for me. Sometimes, many times, in fact, we need to simply serve because that's who we are. We're servants. Knowing that when we serve, we're often serving people who simply don't deserve it. As we didn't deserve it. As we don't deserve it. And yet in doing so, we're also serving God. I hope that for you, doing these questions in this order somehow helps a little bit with this tension that's often created between, I know I'm saved by grace alone, and I'm accepted fully, but it's not grace, as Martin Luther says, it's not grace that remains alone. It's grace that demands a response, requires a response. It doesn't require a response for the grace to be effective. But it requires a response for, because if we fully grasp the grace, there's nothing else that we could do but respond to it. 
how is it that there's all these people in the story that Jesus told that thought they were in good standing with God, but they were not? That's the question that has long bothered all of us churchgoers, right? How is it that there's all these people who are so sure that they were good with God, and yet they're all surprised that they're not good with God? And yet there's all these other people who were thinking they were not good at all with God, and yet they were good with God. By the way, this is not a this, this, um, little parable here. I just have to say, I can't get into it today, but it's in no way an argument for universalism, this kind of idea that, that everyone's okay regardless of whether they know Jesus or not. Hopefully you can see that in the parable because there's a very clear distinction between people who are good and who aren't with God, right? It's not everybody. It's just disturbing to us because it's some of the people who thought they were good who aren't. And it's that surprise that, that worries us a little bit. I think we need to be, we need to hear that. There's times we just need to hear that. It's not that people are justified by their works. Please understand that. It's not that these people were justified and made right with God because they served the poor and those in prison and the hungry and the naked. But it's the fact that those actions reveal that they were right with God. So that when we are right with God, our actions reveal that we are. That's how it works. I want to leave us with one last thought today as we're talking about this. Um, I would love to spend more time on this, but I think it's under, if, if we're talking about what do we do, okay, we've, met, we've gone through all these other things, what do we do? We want to look at the big picture. Right now, this world is facing a refugee crisis that's bigger than anything we have faced since World War II. There are more people in this world right now who are without homes than at any other time since the Nazi regime was going across, sweeping across Europe and Africa and displacing people. And that's how bad it is. I think as a church, even as Thailand's church, we should be asking a, a question. You know, Jesus said that we are supposed to be welcoming these, these kinds of people. What should we do? What is our part in this? I and mean, we're talking about millions upon millions and millions of people. Maybe we could just pick one and figure out what we should do. I don't know. I don't have quick answers. I just found this kind of hitting me in the face as I was preparing the sermon this week. The reality is that our position in life is that we, <clears throat> all of us here, in the world's eyes are rich. We all have influence. We all are powerful, whether we feel it or not. We can call up a U.S. senator on the phone and we can get their ear. I mean, we have influence. What will we do? Let's pray. God, we have to come back to your grace. We, we know that, that guilt is not a place to live. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit convicts us, but also gives us the power to love and to act. I thank you that you've called us, that you've made us family, that you have given us a purpose in life that we're sent people, that we know that we are to be servants, and we don't know anything else, we know we should serve. God, help us to live this out. We do it in your strength and your strength alone. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.